My name is Anna Soper, and I'm a visual artist and librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to Teen People, the podcast where I track down people who were in Teen People magazine as teens and young adults. When I came up with this idea, I originally thought of it as a documentary film or streaming series, but I'm not a filmmaker, and then the pandemic happened, so I pivoted and turned my idea into a podcast. Over three years later, I've spoken with about 30 people who are now in their 30s and 40s about being in Teen People magazine, coming of age in the 2000s, and how they're doing now. Teen People was a spin-off of People and was published between 1998 and 2006. They featured real teens in every issue and printed their full names, ages, and locations. This makes many of them really Googleable today and makes this podcast possible since I use my library science skills to track them down online. Where are these real teens now? If you're a fan of Your Wrong About or Storytime with Seth Rogen, you'll love this podcast. Okay, so you're wondering why you're hearing choral music in a podcast about the early 2000s. Well, it has relevance to this particular episode, which is a conversation with James Frankie Thomas about his debut novel, Idlewild. As a teenager, James was scouted by a Teen People modeling scout and appeared in the March 2004 issue of Teen People in a prom dress and smooch-proof makeup. I spoke with James two years ago, in September of 2021, as he was shopping around a novel based on his high school years at the Friends Seminary, a Quaker school in Manhattan. Idlewild is a fictionalized version of this school, a school whose teachers are known by their first names and whose students sing Haydn's creation in chorus. It's a school where nothing is more important than the show. Idlewild features a large cast of characters, but is anchored by two main characters, Faye and Nell, as well as a third voice, a hybrid of the two girls referred to in the novel as We the FNN Unit. The story is told through narration, footnotes, direct messages, fan fiction, lists, stage direction, and numerous references to film, theater, and books. It's a campus novel like Prep, but with an early social internet sense of humor and a fresh angle on queer and trans identity. I think it has the flavor of the 1964 film The World of Henry Orient, which tells the story of two teenage girls in Manhattan who develop an obsession with a famous concert pianist, and all three of them experience varying degrees of emotional and personal fallout as a result of this fixation. There's also something Wes Andersonian in James's writing, and Idlewild's subject matter and setting draw that out for the reader. And I want to say there's something like Postcards from the Edge in Idlewild, except that it's been about 20 plus years since I read Postcards from the Edge, but that's my theory. I'll read it again sometime and see how I feel about that comparison. Postcards from the Edge, of course, was Carrie Fisher's semi-autobiographical novel, and we do talk in this episode about straddling the lines between autobiography and fiction. However, James wants to be very clear. This is fiction. Join me and James as we explore Idlewild.
So I should be clear here that there are spoilers for Idlewild in this episode. If you're okay with that, but you haven't read the book, here's a quick synopsis. Idlewild is a Quaker high school in Lower Manhattan. Students call their teachers by their first names. There are no grades, and every day begins with 20 minutes of contemplative silence in the meeting house. It is during one of those meetings that an airplane hits the Twin Towers. For two Idlewild outcasts, 9-11 serves as the first day of an intense 18-month friendship. Faye is prickly, aloof, and obsessed with gay men. Nell is shy, sensitive, and obsessed with Faye. In Idlewild, Faye and Nell recall the spectacular cascade of mistakes, miscommunications, and betrayals that ultimately tear the two of them apart. When I spoke with James last month, in September of 2023, we were both experiencing the same late-summer heat wave, despite living hundreds of miles apart in different countries. But James kindly switched off his air conditioner so our audio would sound as clear as possible. I don't have air conditioning, so I'm here in solidarity. So. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. It's so cute that we have the same weather. Yeah. Oh my god, you're in Toronto? Uh, Kingston. Oh, Kingston. Is that, where is that in connection to Toronto? Yeah, so it's like halfway between Toronto and Montreal. But it's so funny. I'm thinking about this because it's almost time for the anniversary and because your book deals with this. But like we had the same weather on 9-11 that you had. Did you really? So I guess if we always have the same weather, you must have the same association if you think about 9-11. Maybe you don't. You were in Canada. Like, who cares? But no, I do. So the weather we've had the last couple of days before it started getting hot again has been like the most beautiful 9-11 weather. Usually, barring climate change, late August, early September is just the most wonderful time in the world weather-wise. Yeah. And you mentioned that in the book, that uh, it was just like, it was stunning. Yeah, that's like the main thing anyone, not the main thing. It's one of the main <laughs> things New Yorkers remember about 9-11. And yes. so I've, been, I've just been thinking about it for the last few days. Because basically since Thursday, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the last few days was like that perfect, like just intense blue, clear 9-11 weather. It's, it's, it's such a distinct air quality and it just brings it back to me every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really powerful. In Idlewild, James writes about Faye and Nell's impromptu sleepover on September 11, 2001, when Nell's mother gives Faye a place to stay for the night because Faye's mother was out of town. When I interviewed James two years ago, he spoke with me about the school that inspired Idlewild. I just felt so relaxed in the environment of my high school. I felt like I could show up and be myself and... That sounds corny, but I don't mean it in a corny way. It was kind of mystical. And I was myself in a way that was really only possible in a very small, very eccentric, very permissive environment. And i it's not an exaggeration to say that I've spent my entire life since then trying to recapture that aspect of myself. And it took me until my 30s to realize that transitioning was actually the simplest path to that. So here we are two uh, years so later. I- it feels like it's been a long time since our last uh, interaction, but two it's years, been right? two years. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm just reflecting on how different life seems now than it seemed back then. And I'm sure it does for you, too. Uh, I'm sure there are many differences for you. But I think chief among those for me is that I'm sitting here with the book that you were talking about the last time that you spoke with me. Isn't that incredible? I think so. 
I'm trying to remember what uh, what was different two years ago. I think I didn't even have an agent yet at the time we talked two years ago because like all my memories are connected in my head. So I remember that our last interview we did the day before I started taking testosterone. Uh, so that was like a big milestone, like last day in my life. It was the last day of me not being on P. But the reason I remember that I didn't have an agent was that the week that I started testosterone was the week that I sent out my novel to literary agents. And so my second week on T was the week that I was taking phone calls from agents and just feeling like so powerful and so new beginnings. So I think uh, our last interview, you caught me like just just on the cusp of all of that. So as I mentioned, Teen People magazine didn't hire models. They turned real teens into models. It was sort of a rite of passage for many of the kids at the Friends Seminary, James's school. It happened to the prettiest girls at my school, James told me two years ago. It happened to the film and stage actor Olivia Thurlby, who appeared in Teen People with her then-boyfriend. I have that issue. In Idlewild, there's a stage kid called Lily Day Jones, and I had to resist the urge to wonder if that was an Olivia Thurlby reference. But then again, Olivia Thurlby is not the only actor who's come out of the Friends Seminary, so perhaps someone else inspired Lily Day Jones. Who's to say? Anyway, while Idlewild is fiction, this phenomenon of teen people scouting the real teens of the Friends Seminary is a real-life detail that made it into the book. So I loved that there are not one but two references to Teen People magazine in Idlewilds. They felt like Easter eggs for for people who know your lore. I think I talked about this in our first interview. It was really not unusual for kids at my school to get scouted for Teen People. So um, in the context of that chapter, all the other kids are so jealous of Lily Day Jones for being scouted for Teen People. And I'm sure that was autobiographical because I was super jealous of all the beautiful girls in my school who got scouted. But then I got scouted. And once I got scouted, it was like, oh, it's not a big deal. It happens to everyone. So I have been on both sides of that dynamic. Right. And, you know, I, I'm sure this this was um, a feature for people who, like friends and family, people who know you personally and intimately must have been reading this, parsing through what's autobiographical. Yeah. And, you know, I know that's inevitable. I did sign up for that when I wrote a novel that is so clearly based on where I went to school. And uh, there are, you know, some recognizable uh, faces in it, you might say. But it is funny. Like, I really I have forfeited the right to get mad at people thinking it's autobiographical. But the only reason it frustrates me sometimes is that the whole story is so completely fictional that it took me five years to write. And I think when I started writing it in 2017, I thought it would be a lot more autobiographical than it was because my, you know, my teen years were relatively full of interesting anecdotes. So I thought I'll just keep like writing down my memories and fictionalizing them and eventually they'll string together into a plot. And it turns out uh, that's not how it works. You, you cannot actually write a novel that way. It sounds it sounds easier than it is. And it turns out it's impossible. You just can't. So it really took me five years to come up with a story, to come up with a plot with a beginning and a middle and an end. And I don't know, sometimes I think other writers don't struggle with this as much as I did. I imagine that for genre writers, coming up with a story seems pretty easy because they churn out so many stories. But for me, uh, coming up with events and like ways to connect the events to each other in a cause and effect way that builds to a climax and like feels complete at the end, 
was the hardest thing in the world. So it's just kind of, it's a little bit ironic that people assume that that was the easy part because that was the hard part actually was coming up with the things that happen in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's separating fact from fiction and and yourself from your characters' selves. Yeah, like, so I look at my Goodreads reviews because they're all pretty much all positive right now. I know I have to stop doing that once they stop being all positive, but you know, it's it's a nice ego boost while it lasts. And so this is a huge spoiler, but someone recently left a review saying, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's so wild. This is my story. I can't believe how much I have in common with the author. For example, my high school musical also got canceled because of the Iraq war. And I just thought that was so funny because not only did I make that up, but it was something I added in the very, very final revision. Like the version of the novel that I sold to my editor did not have that plot point. I think that was something that um, my editor suggested, or it was just like a really last minute revision. So like, not only did I make that up, but like, I almost didn't make that up. It was so hard to come up with. So that's just one example of what seems what seems like it must be autobiographical, I actually had to dig deep to come up with in my own imagination. Mm. I think that really speaks to the power of this novel because it is so steeped in its time. You've you've really created something that's very evocative of the early 2000s between all of the Starbucks references um, to, of course, the references to protesting the Iraq war. I loved the detail of the Idlewild, Idlewild Theater Kids' voices being too hoarse for the play because they were out protesting the Iraq war in March of 2003. Uh, and then, of course, the way you tell the story is through um, through uh, so many different formats, through snippets of fan fiction, through snippets of um, direct messages, uh, conversations. There are footnotes as well. At one point, one of the characters is trying to uh, discern something or make a decision and relies on a sort of debating society narrative in their own head. Um, and so I think that there's just a couple of really interesting, like, formal qualities to how the story is told, but then it's also very, very characterful and evocative of its own time. I can see why someone would would have recognized something in this book that you pulled out of thin air, but actually was a lived experience for them. Yeah, another non-spoiler example of that is an earlier draft I sent to a friend to read. And this was a friend who had only just recently gotten to know me. So we were still like getting to know each other. And the friend read the earlier draft and wrote to me and said, oh my God, this is so wild. I feel like we have so much in common. Can you believe it? My high school also did Othello as a school play. And I had to tell them my high school never did Othello. (laughs) I am not sure that like ever in the history of my school have we done Othello. I made that up. Yeah, I I was talking with somebody recently um, about... Uh, she was telling me about a friend of hers who's a librarian who wrote uh, their debut novel. And uh, she said the, the the book is sort of semi-autobiographical. And I thought of you as an example, because I was reading this at the time, and I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if that's um, characteristic of debut novels. Uh, they say, you know, write what you know, that perhaps authors do uh, pull from their own lives and um, then fall into this trap of their friends and family reading the book and saying, oh, well, I remember that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that must be a pitfall for all novelists. I wonder if it's true that debut novels tend to be more autobiographical. That would actually be, that seems like something that's knowable. It would be interesting to do a study on that. That would be fascinating. That was just my theory, but who knows? 
Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, just bouncing off some of what we've just been talking about, I actually found when I was reading the book, it was, you talk about a trap, falling into a trap. As the reader, I felt like I was trying to keep from falling into the trap of, you know, parsing out fact from fiction, as we just said. I felt like I actually gained the most clarity from your acknowledgements. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. I, yeah. <laughs> the acknowledgements are so funny. They were obviously the last thing I had to write. And I really had a bit of a writer's block about them because I realized when I'm reading a book, in a way, the acknowledgements are the most important part. And the analogy I came up with is the acknowledgements are like aftercare in a BDSM scene. They're aftercare for the readers. Like you read a novel, you have this intense experience, and then the author like speaks to you directly. The author breaks the fourth wall and is like, hello, reader, here's a little bit about me. Here's it's like, you know, not to be not to hit this metaphor too hard, but it is like at the end of a kink.com porn clip where the actors break character and they're like, oh, hey, here's my name. Like, here's here's a little bit about us. And I thought, Jesus, that's like a lot of pressure for writing the acknowledgements, but I have to write them because I owe such a debt of gratitude to so many people. Oh my God, you know my friend Jaya Saxena because, Saxena, because you interviewed her. Mm -hmm. She told me, uh, thank God, she told me after I wrote the acknowledgements, otherwise I would have gotten in my head about this. She told me she always reads the acknowledgements first. With every book she reads, she skips to the end and reads the acknowledgements first, which Ooh. is the most deranged reader habit. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't even occur to me to consider the reading experience for readers who read the acknowledgements first. Who does that? Jaya does that. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so the acknowledgments did, and I'm glad I read them at the end, as you know, as one does, not Jaya, apparently. Uh, there was a lot of, as an interviewer, there was a lot of information for me in the acknowledgments, which, as I said, I sort of, you know, I struggled with the with the body text, the main text. Uh, again, you don't want to assume that everything is autobiographical. You just don't know. I loved this feedback from one of your Iowa professors. The friendship is what's making me turn the pages. How did that feedback help you write Idlewild? Oh yeah, that is an incredible uh, moment in my writing process. So that was Sam Chang, who is just such a special person. She is the program director of the Iowa Writers Workshop, but she's just an incredibly accomplished person. And I don't know how she, how she finds the time to do it all. She's the program director. But also she teaches classes. So she was my first workshop instructor that I had in my first semester at Iowa. She also is the one who personally calls you on the phone to tell you that you got into the Iowa Writers Workshop. So she was the first workshop person I ever spoke to and connected with. She also is a novelist and she recently published a new novel uh, called The Family Chow, which is great. Uh, I read it, it's terrific. And she's a mom, like she just, she does it all. I don't know, I really don't know where she finds the time. So she's, as you can tell, she's like my favorite. She was my favorite person who worked at the Iowa Writers Workshop. So I chose her to be my thesis advisor. I guess it's not that, uh, it's not that much work to be, to be a thesis advisor. I mean, compared to how other programs do it, probably we only had one meeting, but it was a lot of work for her in the sense that she really went through my manuscript at the time and marked up every single page and had a meeting with me where she just went through like all her notes, just like page by page. She went through every single note she'd made on what was at the time, maybe a 200, 250 page unfinished manuscript. I shouldn't have said it wasn't that much work. It was a lot of work for her. It's astonishing. 
So that version of the manuscript is was very different from the one that you read, the one that got published, because at the time, the canvas was much bigger. I originally conceived it as having multiple timelines. The narrative structure was always the same, that it had three narrators, basically. It had we, the FNN unit, narrating in the present tense in the year 2002. And then it had uh, adult Faye and adult Nell uh, narrating separately from 15 years later. That was always consistently part of it. But I originally imagined that they would have their own adult timelines and that in the interplay of these three narrative modes, we would get a much bigger picture of like everything that had happened in their lives since high school and what had happened to all the characters. And I think I started out with a framing device where they would all reunite at the 15 year reunion. (laughs) My classmate, Michael Logan, I believe it was in my very first workshop taught by Sam Chang, made this really offhand comment saying, oh, but nobody goes to the 15 year reunion. (laughs) And, you know, uh, I'm sure he didn't mean anything by it. It was just an offhand comment, but I knew he was right. You know, it's one of those things that like, even if someone doesn't mean anything by it, you know in your heart it's true and then you can't get it out of your head. No one goes to the 15-year reunion. But regardless, the version that Sam Chang read was the framing device at the 15-year reunion. And it just had so much going on. And it was all building up to this big revelation about something that Theo Severin had done, which he did like after the high school timeline, something he'd done as an adult. And like, he was such a bad guy. He was a villain. And all the characters were reacting to it, but not saying what it was. So there was like a lot of build up to something that hadn't happened yet. And a lot of like a lot of filling in the blanks of the timeline and a lot of sort of spinning my wheels to like mark time in the present day timeline that felt like a distraction from the high school timeline. And I had not worked out what the high school timeline even had to do with the present day timeline. It was a lot. There was a lot, a lot, a lot going on. And that was what Sam Chang told me in our thesis advisor meeting. She sat me down and she went through it page by page. And then one of her comments was, you know, there's a lot going on in this novel, but what's making me turn the pages is the friendship between Faye and Nell. Which, you know, she had so many notes, so many comments, but that was the one. That was the one that kind of distilled everything down to a single note. And I was like, oh my God. Like, of course, she's right. Like, I can throw a million plot lines at the wall and see what sticks. But, like, ultimately, when you are reading a book, there is really just a single question that motivates you to turn the pages. And Sam identified that this was the one because it was the one that was baked into the narrative structure from the start. You know, we have this we voice, this joint narrator that's two people who seemingly share a brain. And then the fact that they're narrating separately in the future implies that they separated at some point. So like the number one question I baked into the structure is what happened there? (laughs) And by saying that, by pointing that out, Sam kind of gave me permission to shrink my canvas because I think maybe that was always the question that was motivating me to write the book, but it didn't feel like enough of a substantial subject for a whole novel. But When Sam put it that way, I was like, oh, maybe it is actually. Mm. And so I shrank the canvas and I threw everything out and started over from the very beginning with a version of the novel that was laser focused on the question of what happened between Faye and Nell. And it's just amazing how this smaller canvas allowed me to do more. Like it got smarter. It got less dumb. My 
insights became more real and less put on by focusing on this smaller story. So thank you to Sam for <laughs> giving me permission to do that because uh, I should have been doing it all along. And I don't know if I could have done it without her. It was really a game-changing comment. Hmm. And certainly from what I remember of speaking with you a couple of years ago, you identified in your uh, friend's seminary experience the intense friendship that you had uh, at that time and and how that had sort of evolved over time in your own life uh, to a, a, a crisis point or a climax. Well, you know, actually, that's a good example of how uh, autobiography could only get me so far. And maybe one of the reasons that I did not originally focus entirely on the story of the falling out is that in real life, I didn't really have a dramatic falling out with my best friend from high school. We were really close best friends in high school. We stayed close for many years. Then we sort of drifted apart in adulthood the way best friends often do. And then we drifted back into each other's lives and we hang out and talk all the time now. And it's great, but that's like not really a novel. I mean, you know, it could be, but uh, it's not the kind of intense novel that I wanted to write. Part of what Sam gave me permission to do there was to fictionalize more and make it up. like oh, I seem to be writing a novel about a friendship, so I should really write a novel about a friendship. I need to I need to use my imagination more and come up with like an interesting fictional story about two best friends who have a dramatic falling out. And I did have to, I had to invent there. I had to, I had to use my imagination there. And that's just one of many examples of how I initially thought that my own experience could get me from the beginning to the end of a story, but it actually could not. And I had to make things up. Yeah, and certainly, like the last time we spoke, you talked about the influence of the secret history uh, as a as an inspiration for you. And there's a level of darkness or levels of darkness in uh, the secret history and in Idlewild um, that are not typically found in real life. Oh, that's such a good observation. That is, yes, I think that is the quality that the secret history has that I want to that I wanted to emulate in my own novel. The emotional stakes are just a little higher in that kind of fiction than they are in real life. There's even a line in The Secret History that I love so much that I wonder if I can call it up from memory. Something about how the events of the last year had thrown everything into a kind of lurid technicolor. I don't know if that's the exact quote. We can look it up later. But that that sense of everything being thrown into a kind of lurid technicolor is what I love about the secret history. And that was what I was going for in Idlewild. Interesting. And I think one of the first things I said to you during our first interview was that there was a sort of a Wes Andersonian quality in some of the writing that I had read um, that you'd published to that point. Um, and uh, that I, I definitely felt that again, reading Idlewild, but also I just rewatched a film recently called The World of Henry Orient. That is my mother's number one favorite movie of all time. Oh, that's so cool. She's going to be so happy that you've seen that movie. She's, she is an evangelist about that movie. She will like thrust the DVD into your hands if you haven't seen it. 
It's a fantastic movie. I saw it a long, long time ago, and then I saw it again recently. And I was thinking, this is Idlewild. You know, I was reading Idlewild while I uh, during the time that I saw the world of Henry Orient. Um, and it, just that, you know, the, the fangirling, the making up an obsessive, like, internal life uh, about a real-life person as well, who, um, who who's finding that, you know, being the source of, of other people's obsession is is creeping him out the setting in new york city in you know manhattan um and of course like these two girls uh bonding instantaneously in this um sort of prep school environment wow, that is such an insightful comparison i think i've only seen it like a small handful of times i really want to watch it again because like of course now that you say that the parallels are all there and because that movie is so important to my mom it must have been in the back of my mind as one influence but I don't think I ever consciously put it together until now. I got to watch it again. It's such a good movie. So getting back to the acknowledgements, you wrote, I couldn't have finished Idlewild if I hadn't transitioned. How did affirming your identity support this project? Oh, man. You know, I just wrote an entire essay on this subject for LitHub, which requested an essay on this subject. And it's funny, I thought it would be a really easy essay to write because I have told this story anecdotally a lot. I might even have told it in our previous interview. I don't remember. It's an anecdote that I have told often enough that I'm concerned that it's going to start to sound rehearsed, but I'm going to tell it anyway. And hopefully it won't sound rehearsed because it is a true story that um, the aforementioned first version of this novel, the one that just like was about everything and had a million things going on and was unfocused and overambitious and had an overly broad canvas. Uh, I workshopped at Iowa. I workshopped it in my second semester at Iowa in a novel workshop taught by Paul Harding, who is a wonderful, wonderful novelist, author of Tinkers, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and a new novel called This Other Eden. Uh, he's very brilliant, and it was a really um, intense workshop. It was 9, 10, 11 of us, and each of us had a novel at least 150 pages long. And we workshopped a single novel every week. It was a lot of work. Um, and when it was my turn to get workshopped, one of the first things that Paul Harding said as we, uh, you know, as my classmates began to discuss it in front of me, one of the first things Paul said was, let's talk about the character of Faye. Uh, it's telegraphed very clearly from the first page that Faye is uh, narrating from the present, having transitioned and become a trans man. But the author is not being uh, explicit about this. And it, I, I find that it feels a little bit coy to withhold this information because it's it's so obvious from the beginning. What do we think? Do What would be gained and what would be lost if this information were just made explicit from the start? And then my entire workshop had this conversation like on that premise, like uh, because it was an unfinished novel. So they all assumed that like it was building to a big reveal where this Faye character becomes a trans man. And so all my classmates were like, well, on the one hand, uh, it would, um, you know, it's foreshadowed so obviously that maybe maybe we should just get it out of the way. But on the other hand, maybe the author has a good reason for keeping it uh, for keeping it a secret. So they had this whole conversation in front of me and you're not allowed to talk in your own workshop. So I just had to sit there and listen to them. And I was flabbergasted because that had not been my intention. And I was like, how is it possible, not only that they've all read it wrong, but that they've all read it wrong in the exact same way? I was 
so shocked. I, I couldn't believe they'd taken that. Like, I didn't know where they'd gotten that. And I thought like, wow, I guess no one in this workshop knows the first thing about trans people because if they did, they would know that that's not what a trans person is. Uh, so it was uh, an, important, uh, an important paradigm shift, not only for me, but for the novel to realize like, oh, the novel would actually be better <laughs> if I took this note and uh, intentionally approached it as a trans story. I noticed that vision and visibility is a recurring motif in Idlewild. When Faye is meeting with the guidance counselor, she's asked, where do you see yourself? And Faye doesn't know how to reply because she can't see herself anywhere outside of Idlewild. Faye says the image that came to mind was a picture postcard pastiche with an empty silhouette at the center where I should be. And then there are the very last pages where Nell thinks that she sees Faye, but she's not sure. There are several things that get in the way of her seeing Faye. It's night. The bus is moving, there's fog, and Nell is looking through glass. And Nell says, whoever that person was, they receded into the distance before I could get a better look. Yeah, you know, that's, um, I guess that's not really a question that you've asked, but uh, as a conversation jumping off point, it connects really well to what we were talking about in the previous question about how writing this novel intersects with being trans. You have just made me realize that I am a little bit unfair to myself in the way I tell that story, because actually, um, even if I did approach Faye as a trans character, I sort of run into not just a personal problem, but a craft problem of realistically, like even if Faye is not me, realistically, Faye has not really heard of being trans or like maybe she has heard of transsexuals, but she just like she does not have the she does not have the information to understand herself as trans. And so I actually did run up against the craft problem. How do I, basically, how could I, even if I did understand Faye to be a trans character, how could I write about a character when I have information about this character that the character doesn't have about themselves? And so actually, uh, in resisting understanding Faye that way, I wasn't just resisting something in myself. I was running up against a very real challenge as a novelist, which is like, how do I prevent myself from, how do I prevent myself from imposing an understanding onto the character that the character herself doesn't have? And I think I actually did meet privately with Paul Harding after that workshop to talk about this problem. <laughs> and looking back, I wonder if Paul understood that I was also sort of asking him like, but how can I be trans when I didn't know about being trans until like yesterday? Uh, and he, he, did, he did a pretty good job like keeping to the subject of craft and novel writing and not making it about me. But I wasn't just in denial about myself. I think that is a really interesting question. And so I think you can see that the way that I, one of the ways that I handled it in practice was I kept, I, I kept bringing up, um, like using that, that visibility imagery that you were talking about, the idea that the characters can like almost see something, but not quite. And like, there's a blank where something should be and they don't know what it is. I think you're right that that comes up a lot all throughout the novel. And I think maybe, that was one of the ways I handled that problem of the central subject. One of the central subjects of this novel is something that the main character is not able to know for a lot of it. Uh, of course, Faye is narrating from 15 years later, so she sort of knows now. And so that's that's what's informing a lot of that, like 
lack of visibility that you talk about that like uh, she can see now in retrospect, like, oh, there was something missing and I'm not sure if that's what it was, but like I can sense something missing and I can like almost see it. And there were times when I almost had it, but I couldn't quite get there. So yeah, actually, that's a really interesting observation that I don't know that I even consciously intended. So I couldn't figure out how to ask a question without asking one of those questions as leading or putting words into someone's mouth. You know, that's why I left that open-ended. I wrote that question with the knowledge of our interview a couple of years ago, where that was the theme of our interview, was that you were describing this process of that dawning awareness that you did not that you you didn't feel you had access to at the time when you were a teenager or even a person in your 20s like that that recognition happened for you later and you write um in the epilogue Faye says today's teenagers are culturally alien to me the teenagers i meet are kinder and gentler less sarcastic and more sincere than any of us ever were at idlewild and they are all as far as i can tell some flavor of queer Whatever the cause of this cultural shift, it fills me with a jealousy so intense that I can't reliably mask it. That was um, that was a take that I assigned to Faye that I sometimes agree with and sometimes don't. I really, I go back and forth about this. There have definitely been times in my adult life where I'm like, I think that I was the last generation of teenagers who were assholes all the time. <laughs> I think like it really fell out of favor for teenagers to be assholes. And when I meet teens today, I'm like, oh my God, you guys are all so nice. And like, you are so emotionally intelligent and interpersonally sophisticated in a way that we not only weren't capable of, but weren't even trying to be because it was much cooler for us to be jerks all the time. I do feel that way sometimes. But only sometimes. Other times I think, no, teens are kind of the same throughout history and uh, it takes different forms. But even now when it seems like they're trying to be nice to each other, it just, uh, that's like what's in fashion now. But underneath they're dealing with the same woes and meannesses and uh, cruelties that we express to each other in a different way. So I can hold both thoughts uh, in my head at once. The other thing about that line you quoted to me, it was definitely true when I wrote it that being queer is just different now for teens than it was when I was a teen. And I actually think that um, the line that you just read to me where Faye says they're all some flavor of queer and I'm so jealous of them, that line actually now feels very dated to me. And I don't, I don't mind because that line was written circa 2018 and takes place in 2018. And in 2018, that absolutely seemed true that being queer was so much easier for teens now than it was in 2002 or 2003. Since 2018, oh my God, the political landscape has shifted so rapidly and in such a dark way that I don't think most people would say that now. I really don't think there are that many people my age now who are jealous of queer teens now. If they are, they are projecting their own stuff onto queer teens because especially for trans teens, oh my God, I cannot imagine anything more harrowing than being a trans teen now and knowing that the treatment is available and out there, but like could be snatched away from you at any time. And uh, it's it's so dark. So uh, obviously none of that is on Faye's radar as it was only barely on my radar in 2018. Uh, so it's just interesting how times have changed so much since 2002, but in so many different directions. Uh, and 
I just wanted to say that because I hope no one thinks that that line of phase like represents uncomplicatedly how I feel. There's so many footnotes and so many nuances there. And in its own way, it's a time capsule, not just of 2002, but of 2018, which was five years ago now. Yeah, shockingly enough, I just renewed my mortgage. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's what's so wonderful about the book is, as I said earlier, it is steeped in the early 2000s. But then, and I was actually surprised by this, pleasantly surprised. I don't know how I imagined this book was going to end, but I was pleasantly surprised that it was brought up to the present day. Um, and you do reference the Trump presidency. Um, which I think should suggest, especially to an American reader, um, which I am not, but I think would would suggest all of what you've just mentioned. You know, I think that that is that all is um, um, is expressed. I feel like because you do introduce this contemporary context um, of the Trump years, which itself feels like an unresolved presidency. Uh, in the sense that, you know, the transfer of power is now the subject of several uh, criminal investigations. Um, and yes. what if he comes back for part two? And what does that look like? <laughs> I, I was wondering if there's something in this time and writing this book at this time in your life that I think resulted in what I would say is a sort of open-ended ending, because I was left Having finished Idlewild, I was left wondering, what happens next? Will they reconnect at some point? Um, will Faye go through what you described to me as a couple of years ago as a gender crisis? I had all these questions when, when I finished the book. So I have two answers to that. Um, one answer is, one thing you are picking up on is the thing I was talking about earlier, about how the novel was originally much broader in scope. Uh, so I started writing it when I got into the Iowa's Writers Work Iowa Writers Workshop. I got into Iowa in oh gosh in February 2017. Trump got inaugurated in January 2017. So I was beginning to conceive this novel like right at the dawn of the Trump era, like he had just come into office. And I think not just for me, but for probably most people at the time. Anyone starting a new creative project really felt the pressure to like address this, perhaps even fix it, <laughs> uh, or if not fix it, like explain it, explain how we got here. Yeah. And so that first Iowa draft of Idlewild was really, uh, really steeped in awareness of this new Trump era that we were in and full of what now strikes me as kind of belabored political commentary, just because it seemed it seemed like a waste of an opportunity to not address the political situation in your writing. And that really weighed down the project. And so that's what I was alluding to earlier when I said that Sam Chang gave me permission to shrink the canvas to just the story of two best friends who had a falling out. And I think uh, by doing that, I ended up, as you, as you kind of just said, I did end up having some things to say about the current political moment, uh, even though I was not focusing on that anymore because, uh, <laughs> Focusing just on interpersonal relationships actually will touch on a lot of larger political issues just by virtue of being set in the world and being about people who live in the world. Uh, so that is my first answer to the question of uh, why the novel feels sort of unresolved at the end. My second answer is one thing that has consistently surprised me uh, throughout every finished draft of this novel that I've shown to people from earlier drafts right up till now is people interpret the ending 
in a very variable way. And many people find the ending to be so, so sad. And I like much more so than I expected. It doesn't sound like you do. You seem to you seem to read the ending closer to the way I read it and the way many people close to me read it, which is, oh, it ends like at the cusp of a new stage in at least Faye's life. And probably Nell too is like a little bit stuck at the time the novel ends, but like seems to be thinking about problems in her life that she wants to maybe address. She's like starting to date again. Uh, but Faye is obviously the one who like ends on the verge of something. Like, I think we can all agree she's on the verge. Well, I, I thought we could all agree she's on the verge of something at the end, but a lot of people don't read it that way. And I just did an interview with someone else who asked me in the interview, like, why did you decide to make the ending of the novel so bleak and hopeless? And did you consider like including at least more of a glimmer of hope for Faye? So, and uh, just yesterday, in fact, I noticed a new review was added to Goodreads from someone saying like, I'm so sad. I can't even review this book. Like I can't, I can't even like form coherent thoughts because the ending made me so sad. And I'm actually like, I almost wanted to reach out to that person and say, oh, I'm sorry. I honestly didn't mean to make you feel that way. I'm surprised that you did. But, you know, uh, I can't control how people read that ending. So what you and I read as a lack of resolution, I think uh, reads to many other people as bleakness and hopelessness. And I'm sad that some people get that out of it. But, you know, it's not my place to tell them they're reading it wrong. But this is all to say, yes, that was my intention to to end like just before, you know, to end just before the next big moment in the story, which is going to be an entirely different story for these characters. Uh, yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, there is sadness in things that are unresolved, but I did not, you know. I wasn't like weeping or anything. If, if one of the characters had been on their deathbed, sure. But like, sure. that's, that's not, you know, they're, they're both young women. They, they still have their whole lives ahead of them. I think uh, having just heard your two answers there, um, the second last line feels very significant. The bus kept moving. There's the hope there. Yes. Like Nell is on the bus and Nell is like having trouble, like seeing something receding into the distance, but Nell is on the bus. That's such a good way of looking at it. Yeah. The bus, you know, the bus keeps moving. A different interviewer, uh, not the one who thought the ending was bleak and sad, but a different interviewer uh, asked like why the characters had such sad endings. And I did sort of have to remind this interviewer that the novel ends when Faye and Nell are 33 and 33 is not the end of your life. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so it, it's not even the middle of your life for many of us. And many of us like start entirely new lives at age 33 or older. It ends, you know, at a certain moment in their lives when they're looking back on their high school years. But mm. I think maybe it's easy for a lot of us to lose sight of the fact that life doesn't end when you're 33. This is, <laughs> this is just one chapter in what will hopefully be a very long life for all of these characters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I loved the... Um the the detail in the epilogue about um is it Nell googling people um to see where they're at now that resonated with me because that's what I do to find my guests for this podcast oh my god of course and you are a librarian so you're really good at information technology and using using search resources to find people thank you <laughs>
Yes, uh, I loved that. So for me, the the ending uh, was, I would say, ambiguous, but was not um, sad or distressing. People who know me very well tend to not read the ending as sad and bleak. The like, I think the closer people are to me, the more they read the ending as hopeful. And I realize probably a big part of that is they know me and they know my story and they are projecting a little bit of my story onto the character's story. And I guess even if you don't know me, you could turn the page and look at the author photo, and the author bio and be like, oh, well, this is one possible future for Faye. And that seems like a very happy future. So all is not lost for Faye. Embodiment is another theme uh, in, in Idlewild. There's the empty crime scene silhouette I mentioned before. Um, and Faye's line, when I left Idlewild, I would cease to exist. Uh, and Faye experiences something that she identifies as, quote, Cronenbergian body horror. So I'm wondering, is affirming one's identity a way to exist? Yeah, I think so. I wish I had something more intelligent to say about that. But the passages that you just read aloud, I'm almost concerned are a little bit more informed by like my idea of what a dysphoric trans person sh should feel. I'm not saying they're not rooted in my own experience or reality at all, but like of all the ways that I tried to signal that Faye was trans, I think those parts you just read aloud are the parts that were like closer than some other parts informed by like received wisdom. Uh, I guess that is to say, I don't regret them or anything, but they're not the parts that I feel proudest of where I feel like, you know, there are some parts where I'm like, oh man, this is exactly how it feels. And I have never seen this feeling described before. And I feel like I put words to something that I have never seen words put to before. And those passages that you just read aloud are actually not among those passages that make me feel that way. I think, I think that's almost just conventional wisdom that um, dysphoric trans people often feel like they don't entirely exist and are uh, less embodied than other people. And obviously it's received wisdom because it's true for many people. It's, you know, it's, it's rooted in some kind of shared reality, but I don't know that I have anything particularly original to say on this topic. It's been written about so well by so many other authors, including, if I may name a few, uh, Casey Platt writes about this really beautifully in, um, in her short story collection, A Dream of a Woman, I'm a huge fan of. She writes about it there. Uh, Tori Peters, Indie Transition Baby, writes about it so beautifully, just gorgeously. Uh, those are two, two authors who come to mind right away as, uh, I think even Jackie S. in Daryl touches on this feeling a little bit. And of course, Imogen Benny in Nevada. I would say, if you are curious about how, how uh, dysphoria uh, leads to a feeling of non-embodiment, those are the authors I would recommend more so than me. I think some of this you know, looking back in retrospect uh, that you're speaking of, whether it's about the Trump era or some of these passages, I think that just speaks to how long it takes to get a book published. And I think it's only natural for an author to look back on um, something, especially something that's so personal um, and maybe cringe a little bit. I think that's normal. I'd go easy on yourself about those things. Yeah. You know, one way in which I am so relieved that it takes such a long time to write a novel. So one question you have not asked me, but I have been asked many times by friends of mine who know me. People often ask, in real life, you were high school class of 2005, but Faye and Nell are high school class of 2003. Why did you make them two years younger than you? It's not that interesting a question, but it is a question many people have if they know that I was class of 05. 
And the answer is because, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I originally conceived of the novel having this framing device where they go to their uh, 15-year reunion. And I was writing it in 2017. And uh, it just seemed impossible that uh, that I could think as think far enough ahead to know what would happen, you know, more than a year from now. So I was like, well, let's just say they graduated in 2005. Sorry, in 2003. So then I can set... I can set things in 2018. And as you know, I ended up abandoning that conceit. So it didn't even matter. But oh my God, if I had not abandoned that framing device, can you believe what a bullet I dodged by not writing this entire novel with a framing device set at a high school reunion in 2020? I would have had to throw the whole novel in the garbage. You know, I recently read a novel I really enjoyed um, called 86, which was published in 1989. It's, uh, It's a novel of the 80s. And uh, it is, so the first half is set in 1980 and the second half is set in 1986. And it's a novel by a gay man set in the gay male world in New York City in the 80s. So you can imagine that the 1980 half has a very different feel than the 1986 half. And what struck me as I was reading the second half, which I unfortunately liked a lot less than the first half, is it really had the feel of a COVID book, like COVID literature written during the first few months of 2020. Like it had the feel of a lockdown novel, even Mm. though AIDS had been around for several years by the time he wrote this novel. But it sort of shed some light for me on on like why it's so difficult to read uh, COVID literature from the lockdown months. Because it's not that like people were wrong about COVID necessarily, but that lack of perspective. I could see this in the 86th novel too. Just like what came across was just this howl of anguish with zero perspective and zero insight and zero awareness of what was going to happen. Just like grief and rage and terror. And it was a deeply unpleasant reading experience, not just because those feelings are awful to encounter, but because there just wasn't enough distance from the subject to have anything to say about them beyond, this sucks, I hate this. And, you know, there's nothing to be done about that except, like, give it some time because you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen and uh, how history will shape these events that feel so horrible right now. And yet you fold 9-11 into the narrative of Idlewild so well that it doesn't feel dated. It doesn't feel shoehorned in. It feels perfectly appropriate. It fits the setting. It fits the characters. Um you describe how your characters learn about 9-11 and then how the rest of that day unfolds. You describe it as the last day in history that nobody had a cell phone, which I I laughed. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad you liked that part. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I loved this bit um, very early on, page 18, page 19, um, with Eddie Applebaum coming into your morning quiet, in the meeting house. Guess what I just saw? I ignored him. Sorry, Faye, I said. What were you saying about the scarlet letter? She began again. I haven't, but Eddie Applebaum was persistent. You guys, he said, I just saw a plane crash into the World Trade Center. Faye reached into the pocket of her cargo pants and pulled out the New Hampshire sidewalk quarter. Here, she said, call someone who cares. (laughs) So that scene actually was maybe the very first scene I wrote. I took a seminar in my first semester at Iowa with Chris Adrian, who is a wonderful writer, and he had us do weekly writing exercises. And 
a version of that scene came out of me in one of our very first weekly writing exercises. I had not had the nerve to start writing my actual novel yet, but I wrote that little scene. And once it was out on paper, I thought, oh, I, I think I started writing the book. Like, I think it was a handwritten exercise. And I thought, like, I think I need to type that up. I think I'm ready to start writing the actual book now. But I could not have written that scene without over a decade of hindsight and processing the events of 9-11. It would have come out of me differently if I tried to write it any closer to the event. I just hated reading about 9-11. I kind of still do a lot of the time. I hated talking about it. I hated hearing about it. I don't even know if it's because I was personally traumatized, but something about the horror of the event meant that there was a sort of like very rigid stereotyped way that people talked about it. And I think this is also true of COVID lockdown that like for the first few years after it happened, people could only sort of speak in the same rehearsed cliches about it. And it just, I think with an event that big, it just takes a lot of time to get to the truth of a situation. You just have to sort of parrot the same cliches over and over again for a long time. And I hate parroting cliches. So I just tried to avoid talking about it altogether. One of the things that made me feel ready to start writing about it, I think, was my friend Nadja Spiegelman wrote a wonderful memoir called I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This. And she writes about 9-11 in a way that is incredibly raw and honest and connected with how she actually experienced the event. And I think she was one of the people who emboldened me to revisit the day in a way that didn't feel like I was just parroting the same cliches that everyone else was parroting. And by the way, I don't mean to cast aspersions on anyone who has written about 9-11 or COVID lockdown. This is kind of just a me thing, I think. I think it's just really, really difficult to uh, to write about it in a way that feels authentic and rooted in truth and not just either... Uh, reciting platitudes or re-traumatizing yourself. And I don't even have that much insight on how to avoid it. I just, for me, it took 16 years before I was ready to start trying. And who knows if I will ever want to write about COVID lockdown. Sorry to keep comparing them. I know they're not the same event at all, but uh, I do think about them the same way. And mm -hmm. I just invoked AIDS as another thing that I think it was very challenging for people to write about with like perspective because it was so awful for such a long time. And it was difficult to approach the subject with anything beyond just terror and horror and rage for a long time. Right. And the th the three the those three events have something in common, which is that they're very much centered in New York. Oh my God, that's true. <laughs> well, I, I guess mean, COVID lockdown, COVID lockdown happened everywhere. Everywhere, of course. But you know, I I think back to some of my earliest conversations with teen people guests who were in New York City when they were parking refrigerated trucks outside of hospitals and 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 it seemed like new york was um one of the worst hit places for for a time early on yeah you know i have to admit here i don't want to steal valor i was not in new york during covid lockdown i was living in new haven at the time because i was married at the time and my my then husband was working as a doctor at yale hospital so I didn't get the, I, I think I lose, I lose my New Yorker card a little bit in that sense. When I interviewed you a couple of years ago, I was thinking about this allegory of film photography and queer identity and visibility. Um, and that when you posed for Teen People magazine in 2002, 
you hadn't yet articulated your own gender identity, and yet you and the teen people team seemed to recognize that this was a performance of gender, of femininity, um, that having you in a prom dress and kiss-proof makeup was sort of a step beyond your own identity. Um, and so it occurred to me when I was editing your episode that there's this analogy of, of film photography. Now, I don't know whether they would have used film or digital to shoot you, um, but film photography uh, is, is epitomized by this latent image, um, which is revealed uh, and fixed on the surface of the film through a cocktail of chemicals. And it seemed to me like there's this um, analogy there between a gender transition and um, and film photography uh, that I explored in, in that episode. Uh, can you reflect a little bit on that? And I'd love to, you know, we, the focus of our last interview was very much on Teen People magazine. And yeah. um, I'd love to talk a little bit about Teen People magazine in this one. Yeah, that film photography analogy is so beautiful. I'd forgotten about it. So thank you for reminding me. It's funny, I was actually just recently thinking back on this subject in the context of, I was reading Elliot Page's memoir, Page Boy, and I feel a sort of grudging connection to him because we came out as trans at the exact same time. I came out as trans on Twitter and then he came out, I think 24 hours later or 48 <laughs> hours later. <laughs> and also having just gotten top surgery, like it was so weird. It was a little bit eerie. Like I almost felt like he stole my, he stole the spotlight off me a little bit. I'm joking because no one knows who I am, but like the timing was weird and we are exactly the same age. And so like, I feel like we have lived parallel lives a little bit, but at the same time, he experiences his gender so differently than I do. And I was really struck reading his memoir that he just hated being an actor and having to wear dresses for a role. And I don't know if you've read the memoir, he mentions that he was almost cast in a period drama. I think he said it was an adaptation of a Victorian novel or something. He didn't say what it was and I'm dying to know what it was. But he says he turned down the role because he would have had to wear like big flouncy period gowns for the whole movie. And the idea was just so upsetting to him. He knew he couldn't psychologically have handled it. And I read that and I thought, oh, that's so funny. I wouldn't have minded. Like, this is a very funny thought for me to have, as if I were in consideration for this period drama. <laughs> this has nothing to do with me. I have never been in the position to turn down being in a period drama. But uh, I just thought it was so interesting that even though we superficially look kind of, you know, similar, if you blur your eyes, and we came out at the exact same time on the exact same day, and possibly I, he got his top surgery in New York, like the same week that I did. Like, we are in that sense, two ships in the night. But I think the similarities between us sort of end there, because even now, I would love to put on a fancy gown and star in, God, I don't know, The Age of Innocence or... Uh, or uh, Jane Eyre, who knows? Who knows what, oh my God, maybe it was Jane Eyre. Okay, I'm never gonna stop trying to figure out what was the role that he almost took, but then gave just, <laughs> maybe it was that one. Uh, anyway, he should have given it to me because I wouldn't have minded wearing a beautiful gown for a starring role in a fancy Merchant Ivory period drama. But uh, <laughs> this is just a silly flight of fancy because we are not the same person and we are not similar at all. And it's, <laughs> To this day, fun to imagine myself as a movie star, which I am not, and he is. Uh-huh. The, the, the Canadian James Frankie Thomas is what yes. I'm seeing here. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. That digression is really funny because it does remind me of um, 
I don't remember if it's Faye or Nell in the book who gets upset uh, about like Lily Day Jones getting cast in something. And, you know, why wasn't I cast? I would do this role so much better. It's probably, I mean, I'm sure they both have thoughts like that. You might yeah. be thinking of the moment when Nell finds out that Juniper Green was asked to audition for Mean Girls or was in the casting call for Mean Girls. That's and the one. Like, that's because the casting scout came to the Friday night show. But oh, yeah. <laughs> to the Thursday night show. She would have seen me. <laughs> <laughs> if only they'd come to the Thursday night show. Yes. Aw. So getting back to the acknowledgements, which, you oh, know, yeah. I got a lot out of as an interviewer. Um, I noticed you thank Callan Lord. Are they your insurers or your hospital? I, I'm not quite clear on this because I'm Canadian and we have a very oh, yeah. different they are, system. They are the trans health clinic in New York City. They're not the only place you can go to get trans health care, but they're the original and they're the one with the brand name recognition, you know. Um, and I certainly, uh, I owe a great debt of gratitude to them. I go there, God, like once a week, they, they take care of all my healthcare needs and they're, they're just where it's at, you know, (laughs) (laughs) the hottest club in town. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you thank your former husband who you mentioned earlier, I know, uh, and you thank Twitter now known as X infamously. Not to me, not to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It'll always be Twitter. We'll always have Twitter. Yes. Um, and you thank your mother effusively. Um, you say, thank you for loving me. I knew you'd still love me even if I never wrote or published anything, but I hope Idlewild makes you proud. I did say that. I love my mom so much. And she was, God, I mean, she's always been obviously so important to me, but I really cannot stress enough how important she was to me uh, during, especially during the final couple of years of working on the book because that was in the summer of 2020, I left my marriage and I moved in with my mom and she let me live in her apartment for uh, an extended period of time, which was incredibly generous of her. And I just, you know, I think that era of the pandemic was a weird time anyway, because probably everybody felt like they were just sitting around being useless. So I guess I was not the only one who felt that way, but I know that Visually, it probably looked like I was just sitting around being useless because I was freeloading, living in my mom's apartment, just on my computer every day. And I was working on my novel, but it was a slow process. And she never put an ounce of pressure on me to move out sooner. And she was so supportive of me and so, you know, emotionally supportive, but also financially supportive. And just like I... (laughs) I don't know what I would have done if I had not been able to fall back on her help during that time. And I can never thank her enough. She was, uh, she was just my champion during that time. Thank God. She sounds like that one mother in the world of Henry Orient, the good mother. Oh my God. I'll tell her that I need to watch it again. I don't remember enough about it, but I'm sure that would mean a lot to her. Um, I know you worked on this for many years uh, and over many different iterations Um, So with this book completed, do you have another book in mind? Is there something that readers can look out for next? Uh, I wish I, it took me a long time. It took me years to even come up with like an idea that I could sustain long enough to write another book. I feel like I do finally have one, but it's going to be a slow process. And honestly, I don't know. Like, I I hope I will be able to write a second novel, but I don't know when and how I'm going to do it because Iowa, the Iowa Writers Workshop was a once in a lifetime opportunity. They pay you, they give you 
a stipend that, uh, for you to just sit around in a very quiet little town in uh, a very quiet state to just focus on your novel and that for two years. And then for me, there was a third year where they I, I received a grant to work on it, uh, a fellowship to work on it for a third year. So that's three paid years to sit around with basically no responsibilities beyond writing the novel. It would be lovely if I could have that again, but I don't know under what circumstances I could because grad school is something you can do only once uh, per discipline, you know. Uh, Just like high school. Exactly, yes. Uh, so I, I would love to work on another book, but it's just so easy to get distracted and fill your days with work that pays you, which is famously one of the things that makes it hard to write a whole book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, that is, you know, reason number one that I have not really started a new one yet, but I would really like to. I miss having a fictional project. I just, if I get it together to start another book, I want to make sure it's a project I'm really excited about because I know now from experience that it takes a really long time to write one. And I want to make sure that it's something where I can sustain that excitement for five years because, uh, it's a long time to get excited about one thing. And for a long time, I wasn't sure if I could ever do it again with another project, but I think I'm sort of now moving out of moving out of that zone of my life. I, I'd like to think I could do it again. I really would like to. But also, I am a different person now. I actually, I had a conversation with my friend, Sarah Thankham Matthews, who was at Iowa with me and is the author of an incredible novel called um, All This Could Be Different, which I highly, highly recommend. It's so good. and. We, I think we finished our novels around the same time. So I was telling her that, you know, because I transitioned after finishing my book, I feel like I have written down everything I know and I'm now in a receptive learning phase of my life. And I can't write anything because I don't know anything yet. And I just have to learn yet because I'm like starting a new gender. And I said that to Sarah and Sarah said, no, I feel exactly the same way after finishing my novel. It's not because you transitioned. It's because you wrote a book. (laughs) And I realized, oh, yeah, I actually I can't separate the two things for me. But I guess that's not a trans thing. That's just a having written a book thing. But writing a novel is special. You know, it's Mm -hmm. so difficult, but that's what makes it special. And uh, I hope that Idlewild isn't the only novel I ever write because I am amazed at myself for having done it. and. It's a cool thing and it would be it would be cool to do it again. Well, congratulations on the book. Uh, I'm really pleased and really proud of you. And that's it's so amazing that we talked basically exactly two years ago. And here it is made manifest. Um, so best of luck. I hope you have a lot of success with it. Thank you so much. It was so fun to talk again. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with this podcast. It's really blown up in the last couple of years, I think. Thank you. Thank you so much, James. Bye-bye. Bye. Idlewild is published by the Overlook Press, an imprint of Abrams, and they were kind enough to send me an advance reader's copy of Idlewild. You can buy Idlewild at major booksellers, online, and at your local indie bookstore. If your bookstore or library doesn't carry it, put in a request for purchase. At one point during this interview, I checked Faye's pronouns with James, and James replied, The fact that you've even asked shows you've read the book correctly. 
It wasn't until after the interview, however, that I realized that because of its plot and subject matter, Idlewild could be banned in some American libraries, and possibly even in some Canadian libraries too, the way things are going. If you want some tools to help you fight book bans, I placed a link to some resources from the American Library Association and the Ontario Library Association in the notes for this episode. Please have a listen to my first episode with James, which is called My True Gender is Theatre Kid, The James Frankie Thomas Story. We talk more about James's high school experience, and James reads excerpts from his teenage blog about being scouted and photographed for Teen People magazine. You can also find my interview with James's friend Jaya, who was in Teen People's summer music special of 2004, enthusing about her favorite record store in New York, Other Music. And why not leave a rating or review before you go? Please share my work with your friends and help me reach more listeners. You can find James on Twitter at James underscore F underscore Thomas, and find me on Twitter and Instagram at Teen People Pod. I'm Anna Soper. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.